Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming in Southern California at KPFK, Western Massachusetts at Valley Free Radio, WMBR in Cambridge, and worldwide at biketalk.org. First, Massachusetts Bicycle Coalition Executive Director Galen Mook was at the Mass Trails Conference this weekend, where he interviewed Namrita Kapoor with Hub Love. All right, welcome to the Mass Trails Conference. We are here in beautiful Fitchburg, Massachusetts, a gathering of statewide trails advocates here in Massachusetts that is full of agencies like Department of Conservation and Recreation and Mass DOT. Also a bunch of advocates such as myself here as part of Mass Bike. And then we also have supporters and funders and just all around trails lovers, including Hub Love with Namrita. So we have Namrita here as a guest. I'm gonna pass it off to you, Namrita, to talk a little bit about why we're here and the vision. And then please do a quick introduction of yourself as well. Sure, my name's Namrita Kapoor. I come from a background mostly in environmental advocacy and finance. I work with Steve and Alexi Conine on their Hub Love initiative. Hub Love, our vision is all Bostonians having access to a world-class biking experience to live, work, and play. And we think about that across three areas of where we focus our funding. One is around marketing and communications. How do we elevate and celebrate all the great organizations that are focusing on this shared vision? Two, we look at access and inclusion. So making sure the all of our vision is addressed. And then three, around infrastructure and how do we fund primarily like design and feasibility for building out infrastructure. And that's what connects us to the Mass Trails Conference. Mass Trails for a long time has been focusing on how do you build out cross-state infrastructure for non-motorized types of access. I love it. Thanks, Namrita. It's great to have your support and your advocacy here as well. I want to lean in a second on the Trails for All conversation because I think that's something that's come up several times as part of the keynote today and almost every presentation. There's talk about maybe a future generation, so getting younger, or maybe it's diversifying in terms of demographics of race as well and income brackets. But when you look around the advocates here, we are pretty monochrome in a white pattern. So I'm curious your take on that and well, really, how does that strike you and what might we be able to do to really reach that diversification of getting everybody. Yeah, it's a good point. I was saying to one of the maybe two people of color in the room today that I needed to connect her to another person of color. And right away, she was able to pick out who that was. (laughs) (laughs) The way that we've been approaching it is twofold. So first, we've been funding organizations that has at the core of their mission, access to underserved communities in this type of area. So Mattapan Food and Fitness Coalition is an example. Bikes Not Bombs is another example. Another way that we've been focusing on this is prioritizing provision of design and feasibility studies to communities that are underserved. The third one is an area that we have yet to sort of really put some juice behind, but that a lot of our community has been telling us would be valuable, which is How do we create bike hubs and bike shops in those underserved communities that that's viewed as sort of a key way to address some of the barriers to getting a diversity of communities that are unfamiliar with biking and other types of mode shifts. There's sort of like this higher activation energy sometimes for people to enter into the space. It seems like there's a higher activation energy that's needed than there is. And so once people sort of 
start, they realize it's easier than they first thought. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. What have you been inspired by so far today? What have you seen that's really struck you? We referred to as the awe moment in the keynote this morning, but have you had an awe moment yet or what are you taking away so far? Yeah, I've had several awe moments in a panel that was about trails and community engagement. There was this wonderful gentleman from the Eagle Eye Institute who was talking about how do we provide access to those that have least access. And he closed his remarks doing this really wonderful kind of trick almost of he asked us all to clap our hands at the count of three. And he he said, one, two. And then he said, he, he waited and he first clapped and then he said three. And he did this twice and each time we fell for the trick and clapped before he said three until we finally got it and lined up with when he said three. And he said, the whole point of this exercise was to emphasize people follow what you do, not what you say. And so we're really spurring us all to action. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah, I was in the audience there. And yeah. That really struck me too. It's, yeah, it was compelling. Yeah, it's, it's so much more effective when you really think, oh, we have to do it. Yes. It's not good enough to say it. And it's been yeah. said time and time again today about diversity, et cetera. But yeah. let's, let's see it in action. Yeah, exactly. thanks for calling that out. Any other thoughts about mass trails you want to throw in? I love the whole idea of collective impact and working across silos. And that's the other thing that we in our Hub Love initiative are trying to do. And as important part of what we do is not only the funding, but also pe- bringing people together and having them get to know each other so that they can start to break down those silos. Awesome. Yeah, I really appreciate that too. All right, last thing before I let you go. Do you have a bike joy? A bike joy that is that euphoric moment, that connection, that inspiration that you want to share with all the audience here? So mine is very dated. Probably like about 20, 25 years ago, I used to commute by bike from Cambridge to Beacon Hill. And one of my favorite parts of the day was when I was biking home, biking along the Esplanade and enjoying the the sunset. I could have had the worst day and then everything else would vanish and it would just be a wonderful evening after that. Awesome. Thank you, Namrita. I really appreciate your time and all your support here. Thank you. And thank you for all your efforts, Gail. And I appreciate it. Good afternoon and welcome to Bike Talk. My name is Taylor Nichols and I'm here once again with Eli Kaufman, a longtime guest of the show. Eli is the director of Bike LA, which was formerly known as the Los Angeles County Bicycle Coalition. So you, like many of the rappers in this world, are changing your title. Welcome, Eli. (laughs) Yeah, well, thanks for having me on Bike Talk again, Taylor. It's always a pleasure to join the show. And this time with a name that hopefully is a lot easier for folks to say and to get connected to. Yeah, we had been the LA County Bicycle Coalition for almost a quarter century. And really, we found ourselves continually having to explain that we are not a quasi-governmental agency like LADOT or LAUSD or LADWP. Right. But that LACBC was really a 501c3 nonprofit. And so we wanted to find a name that was not only more accessible and resonant, but also was a bit of an invitation and a call to action. So for instance, I bike LA or why I bike LA or why right, should or we people, bike LA or, or you we, should bike LA. Exactly. And it becomes a call for folks. And we did a lot of thinking about it. There's also a naming convention that's pretty consistent across the country for bike advocacy groups like Bike Houston, Bike New York, Bike East Bay and the Bay Area. So we wanted to be more aligned with our sister organizations for folks as well. 
Great. Well, I've been a supporter and a member of the LACBC since the second river ride back in, what, 2001 or two or something like that. So I'm going to miss the old logo and the name, but I really like the new logo. And last week, as a formal coming out party for Bike LA, you hosted Bike Fest. Can you talk really quick about that? Yeah, so we just wanted a chance to celebrate the bike culture in LA and to uplift a couple champions who we are especially inspired by. And that included council member Nithya Raman from CD4, who's right. done some great work in Griffith Park to slow down cut through car traffic, as well as some encouraging work on Riverside Drive. Could be more, but it's at least a start. And just her general take on multimodality, right. getting more people to think about getting out of their cars and trying transit and walking and bicycling. And you know, what was great about Bike Fest also is that Laura Friedman was there, an assembly member for the state of California, and Anthony Portentino, a state senator. And so we're really starting to see some changes in the way our political leaders are leaning into the cause. Absolutely. And I think three or four years ago, it would have been hard to bring senators, assembly members and council members all totally. under the same roof. And with Senator Portentino and also Assemblywoman uh, Laura Friedman, Friedman, yeah, they weren't part of the formal program, but they still wanted to come out right. and be a part of it. And so yeah. that's highly unusual. Usually you're dealing with schedulers and people saying, OK, well, we can fit you in for 15 minutes. These are folks that rode their bikes to the event. Yeah, wanted that was to be a the part best. of it. Yeah. And they're not only walking with the talk, but they're doing it. It was awesome. It was just so encouraging. So yeah. yeah so it was really celebrating great. a bunch of our partners like Treats Are For Everyone and Cyclavia and some of our corporate partners and Walk and Rollers with Jim Shanman. Right. We, we wanted this to be truly a bike party for everyone, not just a fundraiser for Bike LA. And look for more of that next year, more right. of the whole coalition, more of a totally community affair where we bring in as complete a cross-section of people as we can. Right. Well, I've always felt that the advocacy world for safer streets is very diverse and very split, but that Bike LA is the glue that kind of holds all these desperate groups together and pushes them forward. And I think that was what was really nice about Bike Fest. So thanks to you and your organization for doing that. I want to move on to one other thing. Since we were talking about the city council and all that, you've got some good news to share about the city council supporting Sunset for All. So I wonder if you could talk about that for a second. Back on November 1st, well, actually before that, CD13 put forth a motion to finally direct city departments to coordinate on and recommend improvements related to Sunset for All. And that was unanimously approved by the LA City Council Transportation Committee on November 1st, 2022. So that meant that that specific committee that's responsible for vetting and really taking a look at the directions that a specific council member puts forth to make sure that it actually is a good idea and holds right. water, that the homework has been done, so to speak. And they unanimously approved it. It went back to the city council on the 10th of November and was, was unanimously supported 10-0 to become a priority project. And so what this means for next steps is we can actually begin to further develop the preliminary engineering plan toward creating a shovel-ready project in right. collaboration with LADOT and their engineers. And that's a really important distinction because prior to these motions and these actions by city council, this was a completely grassroots, community-led project right. uh, by folks like Terrence Houston and Avital Shavit yeah. and a number of other local advocates and activists who've been meeting every single Tuesday for years. 
showing up and doing public engagement, knocking on every door from businesses to folks who live on the corridor to also faith-based organizations, PTAs, anyone they could talk to about how transformative this would be. Turning Sunset Boulevard, that 3.2 miles from a car thoroughfare into a destination right. for cyclists and pedestrians and transit users, really a model project for what's possible in the city of LA and the county beyond. Now what it means is that our engineer, Rock Miller, can formally meet with DOT engineers and start to share information and start to develop the strategy and the plan for getting a shovel-ready project going. Any idea when the shovels might actually break ground? Oh, no, that's the million-dollar question there. (laughs) I mean, a year, two years, 10 years? It's really hard to say. I know it's going to be related to funding. Essentially, we have total unanimous support for this even to the point that we are in a position now to actually talk to the leaders at DOT to not only have it be a priority project for their engineering staff, but to make this really part of their goals for 23-24. And I think there's an added pressure for them to identify signature projects like this more now than ever, because it's just been such a failure for them to get their mobility plan implemented. This is a corridor, as you know, that's on the high injury network. It's yep. listed on Vision Zero planning. It's also in the mobility plan 2035. So it's a project that's been on all their lists for a very long time. It's an ambitious idea in a very highly trafficked area. That's why we're leaning into it because we figure like if we can make an iconic street like Sunset Boulevard, a bike-friendly, pedestrian-friendly, transit-friendly street, well, then just think about the context of what that sets up for all the other streets that we are trying to improve. As well as the rest of Sunset. I mean, my God, how about the Sunset Strip? What a blast to see that. Make that a real destination again. Yeah. Well, Eli, that's great news. Thanks so much for sharing. Eli Kaufman from Bike LA. Thank you very much. Hey, Taylor, anytime and look forward to continuing the conversation. Last week's election was a victory for car-free streets in San Francisco. Here's Luke Bornheimer on the passing of Prop J and the defeat of Prop I. I'm with Luke Bornheimer, uh, who has been advocating and organizing for no on Prop I, yes on Prop J for how long? Almost two years now. This is big for you. Yeah, this is huge for San Francisco, and it is clear and resounding message from voters that they want more car-free and car light spaces in San Francisco to help us shift more people to bikes and to a safer, greener, and more livable city. As somebody who's the resident of San Francisco, what does it mean? So very tangibly, this means that car-free JFK Promenade is permanent now, as well as a few other car-free streets in Golden Gate Park. And it also means that Great Highway Park along our oceanfront will remain open on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays for people to use. What this means for San Francisco is that voters have sent a clear message to elected officials and to city leaders that they want to see more car-free and car-light spaces in our city so that more people can ride bikes around San Francisco and be safe and enjoy our city and make our city more sustainable. How did it feel to see the voters approve, Jay? and swat down I after working on it for two years. How did it feel? It was a massive, massive relief and very encouraging. Something that I had a sense of 
starting back at the beginning was that the majority of San Franciscans wanted these spaces to be made permanent and wanted to see more of them in our city. And so when this vote actually came through and to see it win by likely when all the votes are counted more than 20%, it is a very encouraging and uplifting message from voters that they love these spaces and they want to see more of these spaces. And for me, that was relieving and encouraging and inspiring because it sends a clear message to our elected officials and city leaders that they need to do more to create more of these spaces. Places that were for cars by the ocean being used by kids and old people and everybody to walk and bike and play, right? Exactly. What we've seen is that these spaces, which used to be cut through roads for people driving cars and redundant roads at that were opened up to people. And what we saw as a result was kids learning to ride bikes, community members connecting, and countless people switching to bikes and other sustainable modes of transportation. Obviously, along on our oceanfront, Great Highway Park is an amazing community space that people are enjoying and experiencing the ocean and on our beach more so than ever before. It sends a clear message about just sustainable transportation and bike infrastructure in our city and that people want to see more of that because it helps people have a more livable city. What do you do now? Two years of organizing and advocating and now what? Yeah, it's a great question. So there are a few things that are already ongoing that have been happening for almost just as much time. First, Great Highway Park, so along our oceanfront, is currently only temporarily open to people Fridays through Sundays. There is a concerted effort and an entire nonprofit organization dedicated to converting that space to a full-time 24-7 park for people to enjoy year-round where we can install tables and chairs and make it more accessible for everyone to visit and enjoy. So that is one effort. Separately, there are a network of slow streets around San Francisco that were established during the pandemic and have seen tremendous usage from people walking, from people biking, um, and from people building community on these streets that are now shared amongst people walking, biking, playing, and people driving cars. There is a concerted effort to not only make those slow streets permanent, but to add traffic diversion, you know, specifically median diverters on all of the slow streets, and then expand the slow streets network to, in an ideal world, we are looking at every street in San Francisco that's not an arterial being a slow street. Every street being a slow street, what would that mean? One, it would mean that our, our residential streets would see an elimination of cut-through traffic, which represents the vast majority of speeding and reckless driving on residential streets. It would mean more people shifting trips to bikes and sustainable transportation, including kids and families going to school. It would mean a more livable city that has less noise and air pollution, specifically on residential streets. So that would be massive for our city, and it would lead to a completely new city that would be much more enjoyable and livable for everyone, specifically kids and families, but also seniors, people with disabilities, and people who walk and bike around our city. And then just to mention it, there are continued efforts to expand our bike network here and specifically get protected and separated bike lanes throughout the city, as well as protected intersections so that people who choose to ride bikes around our city can do so safely. And so we can get more people riding bikes around our city. All right. And who should we be following on this now? Who's the one to watch? There are a number of people and advocates in San Francisco doing great work. On the more activist side, there's Safe Street Rebel, who's on Twitter and a bunch of other social media platforms. There's obviously 
you know, more established long-term advocacy or in San Francisco, like the San Francisco Bike Coalition and Walk San Francisco. There's also a group that's doing tremendous videos about people who use these spaces called community spaces. And so there's just a variety of people and groups that are doing this tremendous work and really elevating people's voices and saying we need more of these spaces in our city. Yeah. And then there's you. Yeah. It has been a long and somewhat challenging road the past two years. It is very uplifting to see voters send a clear message that these spaces are a really positive thing for our city and they want to see more of them. Are you all partying to celebrate? <laughs> yeah, there have been a few parties over the past couple of days, many of which on JFK. There will be another one on Great Highway Park later this week and this weekend, and then another kind of informal gathering on JFK on Saturday as well. Obviously, there will be a number of parties. But the great thing, too, is that with Car Free JFK Promenade being permanent now, nearly every day is getting usage and, and people are enjoying it. And so in its own way, that's kind of a party in and of itself. Congratulations once again. Thank you, Nick. To all San Francisco. Yeah, thank you, Nick. That was Luke Bornheimer, advocate for streets for people in San Francisco. And now one last time, Yes, Sanjay by John Elliott. Some people say, hey, I like to drive. Well, that's okay. Vote Yes, Sanjay. And you can drive anywhere and anytime On every street and every road Everywhere you want to go In the sunshine and the rain In the day and in the dark Except a mile and a half in the park So you gotta vote yes on Some people say, hey, I'm mobility challenged. Well, that's okay. Vote yes on Jay. There's a safe and quiet place for you to be. No matter your ability, there's a shuttle to take you there. Away from cars to cleaner air. Full of kids and full of joys Far from traffic and from noise But you gotta vote yes on Jay Yes on Jay Jay for joy Yes on Jay Jay for girls and boys and adults of every age Who want to run and walk and jump and jog and scoot and skate and ride their bikes and play You gotta vote yes on Jay You gotta vote yes on Jay No one I I for injury I for idling I for idiotic policy No one I I for ignorant Irresponsible I for I believe that I do
deserve to drive In the park and by the ocean You will inhale my commotion I will destroy the open spaces And the children's smiling faces I for insane Yes, I'm Jay Jay for joy Yes, I'm Jay Jay for girls and boys and adults of every age Who wanna run and walk and jump and jog and scoot and skate and ride their bikes and play You gotta vote yes on Jay You gotta vote yes on Jay That was Yes on Jay by John Elliott. Now, Taylor Nichols interviews Altadena, California, bike advocate, TV director, and Altadena town councilor Dorothy Wong on Safe Streets and Politics. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Bike Talk once again. My name is Taylor Nichols, and today I'm here with one of the original OG Bike Talk ladies, Dorothy Wong. Dorothy and I met, I don't know, five or six years ago, probably, teaching bicycle education classes through Metro. We're both LCIs, which are league certified instructors. And Dorothy always rode from wherever she happened to be to our class and brought all the materials and was a real advocate for cycling. But the reason that she's a guest today on Bike Talk is because she has transitioned from just biking alkalite and advocate to town council and getting involved in the understanding and I don't want to say making laws because I don't think that you make laws, but you're out there promoting the things. So Dorothy Wong, welcome back to Bike Talk. Thank you, Taylor. Nice to be here, of course. Yeah. Tell us really quickly how you got started in biking. You were talking to me just before we started recording about working in the entertainment industry. And that all kind of fell by the wayside when someone gave you a bike. Yeah. So like many of us at our age, we did have the ability to ride bicycles when we were young. And so I did find my way back to bicycling. When I went to college, I didn't have a car. And so I did take the bus and rode my bicycle around. And then I... Where'd you go to college? I went to Loyola Marymount. Oh, sure. Yeah. And then I made enough money to buy a car and I sadly left my bicycle at the college campus and then found my way to driving. But working in Hollywood, one of the cameramen said, hey, Dorothy, you would love mountain biking. And I was like, what is mountain biking? (laughs) He handed me one of the flyers to Team Big Bears mountain bike racing. Sure. And I went to watch the race and it was a rainy day and there were mud all over the faces of the riders and just looking like they were trying so hard. And I said, oh my God, that sounds like me. Most people would see that and say, forget about it. I'm not doing this. But no, Dorothy Wong is like, okay, I'm in. Yeah. Get the hard work done. That was just part of my persona over time is just working hard. And the bicycle just became an empowering tool. At the end of the day, I lost weight. I found all these new friends. I found my husband partner for life now. And I think the adventure of bicycling, because you are really out there and you make so many friends 
And you then see that it is a tool that can get you. So when I was working in Hollywood, I'm like, why do I have to sit in traffic? I could ride my bike. Yeah, especially because you're called always really early in the morning when there's not that much scary traffic and you can get there. Or you find through bicycling, there are roads that are less traveled that can get you there. And then you could find those streets the cars weren't at. Did I answer your question? Yeah, totally. It's funny, you said that you felt empowered by the bike. I think Susan B. Anthony has that wonderful quote that says one of the greatest things for the emancipation of women was the bicycle. And I think certainly for women, but also just for people in general, it is very empowering. I went downtown last night to see Jeff Beck play at the Orpheum Theater. And my buddy and I rode our bikes down there. And, you know, it was just so great. No traffic getting in and out and easy to park. And it was just really empowering. It was really fun. So once you started biking, you quickly got involved in promoting biking and bike races. Tell us about that. Yeah. So one, I was working in television production. I like to help. So I would also volunteer with a local bike promoter or bike club that was putting on the events. And they said, Dorothy, why don't you put on an event? (laughs) And then I'm like, wait a minute. It was a great idea. So again, we're a community. So one of the people that I rode with lived nearby And he actually worked with the city of Glendale and helped us get the first venue for the classic turkey trot cyclocross race. Are those cyclocross races off-road? Yeah. So cyclocross is a really awesome sport with mixed terrain. It was actually developed in Europe a hundred plus years ago when people wanted to ride their bikes during the winter, got a little icy and sloppy. And so, hey, what a great sport. Ride around on our skinny tire road bikes and jump over logs and the town got behind it and would have amazing parties. So cyclocross is a circuit race. So in today's world, in the city of LA, we put on a race at Griffith Park, that Greek theater parking area, which also happened to have these little dirt inlets and some grass. So it's mixed surface that can happen in a variety of places. And I think it really motivated me working in Hollywood, where you're always solving problems and being in a creative realm, so to speak. It was kind of my ability to create or produce something. But then seeing everybody happy, again, in this miserable, can be painful, (laughs) running up a hill or riding around in mud and ice. But I think all of us really have that sense of Even when you're on a bicycle, you feel a little bit balancing first and then actually getting going. It's always a little bit on the edge, I guess. Right. You were saying that when you were doing cyclocross, it actually gave you a lot of confidence on the bike, the constant getting on and off the bike or carrying it. You want to talk about that for a second? Sure. So totally cyclocross, because you are getting on and off your bike, you might have to carry your bike to run up a hill or jump over a curb. I found myself as I evolved into a multimodal bicyclist, I loved commuting into Hollywood when I can. And when I then retired from Hollywood, it didn't dawn on me that I would actually become a bike instructor. Right. And there's so many stories that weave into it, but cyclocross just gave me the skills I realized to get off my bike, hop on the sidewalk, the bike on my shoulder, go up the stairs of Metro, To handle any kind of urban environment, right? Curbs or train tracks or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, that really helped out. So again, when you're around and meeting a lot of people, you also get inspired and then you really can 
create this teamwork environment to really get something done that no one's right. ever done before. Right, right. It's not in a book. You have to actually feel it, right? Like your heart. So that's the other thing. I've been really blessed that everything I've done, I've done because I've kind of wanted to do it in Hollywood for 20 hours a day. Maybe I wanted to be at home sometime. Right. But it was always fresh, different ideas. And I was doing a lot of freelance work. And then biking has similar characteristics. And it really did evolve me when people were getting hurt. Well, I was empowered going multimodal and transporting myself to work. But then when I was also seeing people get hurt, I have more than handfuls of people I know that have been killed. Really? Oh, my God. Their bicycle. And so I felt really deeply about those things and that my love of the sport. And then at the same time, I'll never forget that I can look at an email from my friend who was struck and killed by a distracted driver say to me in his email, Dorothy, we need to make the streets safer. And he was telling me about a particular street and the next week he wasn't here. This actually brings me to the reason I wanted you on the show, not just to talk about your cycling and racing past, but LACBC, the Los Angeles County Bicycle Coalition, had an event last weekend called Bike Fest, which was a fundraising event for the LACBC. But it was a really wonderful opportunity for a lot of different people in the greater LA area to come together and to socialize and to exchange ideas and things like that. It just got me thinking about how we are starting to get this momentum behind us. And it's because I think people like you are moving from the advocate world to the political world. And you're now a town council member for Altadena, correct? Yeah. So can you tell me what made you decide to run for that position? Sure. So ultimately, through biking and always deep in my heart, advocacy has been part of me. And environmental advocacy, I found myself helping to try and save this large area of the Arroyo Seco for habitat. So then people started seeing me out there. So again, the cycling community, actually, amazingly enough, active San Gabriel Valley, Andrew Yip. I don't know if you know Andrew. No, I don't. No. Ultimately, I trained him as I became an LCI. So that was life-changing, becoming a league certified instructor for teaching bicycling. And I ended up teaching or mentoring. That's why I got the OG name when we first started this, because I had to go to Washington, D.C. to get certified. Oh, wow. And I came back, Metro Los Angeles put out their first ever half million dollar pilot. So Metro has had a big game in this, too, in our community on how public transportation has changed the face of Los Angeles County. But ultimately, just through these partnerships in bicycling, and advocacy. There was a program called Nature for All, which was actually worked to protect the San Gabriel Mountains Mm -hmm. as public lands and to improve access. So really, Active SGV was called Bike SGV. LA County Bicycle Coalition has been the core where we've all gotten to know each other through that and bicycling advocacy. So then he said, you would enjoy being part of this stewardship leadership program. So it was really my leadership in bicycling and then in learning advocacy through, at that point, it was called the San Gabriel Mountains Forever Leadership Academy. And now it's a stewardship program for nature for all. But I ended up getting flown to Washington, D.C. to stand up (laughs) in front of our legislators to say, hey, we want to protect these mountains for access and our sustainability, all of those things. So learning through leadership programs there, 
obviously learning uh, through the advocacy work of the different coalitions and also the California Bicycle Coalition, which I'm a proud member sure. uh, on board for the California Bicycle Coalition, where we then had a day with Climate Resolve, I think it was, maybe another, but we actually then learned how to lobby. In other words, go and speak in front of our representatives. Right, right. So all of those things just led to, why don't I just see what it feels like? Because I'm standing in front of the town council or the city of Pasadena going, we need our streets safer. We need space for people to move. Well, why don't I just try and run? And Good. I did. And it turns out that all that advocacy work I had done because people have helped uplift me too. Right. And we all uplift each other in bicycling. And that really led to having people support me and say, hey, I want to have a tea thing at my house so people can meet you. Great, <laughs> great. Even in Altadena, we're like, vote for Dorothy, vote for right. Dorothy. If you live in Altadena. And then from there, we started a traffic safety and mobility committee of the town council. We need insiders in the bike world to move to be insiders in the political world. And so my next question really was, what have you been able to do on the town council to continue this activism for safe streets and sustainability? Yeah, so they're all tied together at the of end course. of the day. And through the council, one of the first things was to advocate for a traffic safety and mobility committee of the town council. And it took, I don't know, a few tries, but council said, okay. And then we definitely had a great group together to come up with a mission statement to get it started. And then things just kind of snowballed from there, uh, applied for some local grants with the Southern California Association of Governments, Go Human. And we did a pop-up bike park for the day. So I was great. able to take my event promotion work and then really think about how to activate people. So then the library became one of our partners. Then we had Tai Chi and karate. So really like mixing in all the modes of active, healthy lifestyle. And then we created our bike skills park and we did a little bike tour and we did a walk audit, different things that the community can then start really feeling where they live. You know, that's a great term that you just used, actually, feeling where you live, because you often don't feel where you live when you're in a car. But when you're walking or biking around your neighborhood, you feel where you live. You feel the road. You feel if it's safe, if it's welcoming, your eyes on the street, as Jane Jacobs would say also. That's a great way to put it. I like that. So the other thing <laughs> on the council that I've been learning, if anybody runs, mm -hmm. it's how much you learn. I like to talk but learn to listen, involve people. And then I've been lucky to go through a Pasadena leadership program, Leadership Pasadena. And also America Walks has a walking college focusing on other modes of movement was a way that collaborated people who are advocates or just smoothing out all of those channels. But it was really learning sessions, learning what other communities are doing, and then also learning ourselves different things like land use policies. So that's the other thing. On any level of council, I would also encourage just getting involved in committees or volunteering for different things because learning about land use policies, housing elements. Right. <laughs> Zoning laws, sure. Parking minimums, yeah. totally. I feel like I've been so educated on all of that, which really helped me see 
as we look at our housing evolution to increase density and things to do with density. And my eyes are always open. How can we take this opportunity to make it safer for people to walk and bike? So right. project that came up, I said, um, what is the public right-of-way space? <laughs> I'm always asking questions that also help ADA accessibility not just fighting parking, but thinking about how we can really move in different ways. So I've been really doing a lot of local community events and encouraging people to go to the farmer's market by bike. Then I would give away market dollars for everybody that came by bike. Or Oh, that's great. And who pays for those market dollars? So we've been able to get either in partnership with Vendors. the farmer's market, but I've also been really savvy at looking what grant opportunities are out there. Right. Well, that's huge. Getting grant money is huge because we have to finance a lot of these projects. But I also think that the advocates have to be paid at a certain point. Let me ask you, what have the roadblocks been for you to create more bicycle infrastructure or more safe street infrastructure? Yeah, two things. I think number one, we all have to really focus on capacity building and really bringing people in to say, we want this, whatever it is. And so in Altadena, where I live, we're the sixth largest unincorporated area in all of Los Angeles County. We have 45,000 people in Altadena, and we don't have a, quote, local government. So that's where the town council has the ability to empower the residents to hopefully learn, get people together and meet people where they're at. We can do a lot easier than the County of Los Angeles can because they've got so many things on their plate. Are you paid on the town council or not? Am I supposed to answer that? Well, you don't have to tell me how much. I'm just curious if you're paid. I am free. I think that's wrong. The LA city council people make $200,000 a year. Yeah. I mean, not that Altadena has to match that, But I wonder how much more seriously people would take the positions and how much more seriously people would take the outcome of the decisions the town council makes if the town council was paid. And that's the same with neighborhood councils, too, for that matter. I totally agree. A lot of work seems to come down to capacity and then people wanting to make those bold decisions to actually do what it is needs public buy in. Right, right. (laughs) Or you're going to get people fighting it, whatever it is. And so to your point, I feel like I've learned so much and I'm trying to help more people in our community learn more and just spreading the wealth. And so I take it as free learning right now. Sure, of course. And also free teaching. Yes. Two things, because I do think a big part of an advocate's job when they move into the inside of the political world is to teach other political leaders some of the things that we know about safe streets, about infrastructure, about induced demand, about parking minimums, about road safety devices like ball bouts or chicanes or traffic circles. They're not just impediments to traffic. They're there to calm the traffic and to make it a safer place for the neighbors to walk their dog or whatever. But people have to be taught that. Yes. So to that point... Just again, that no quit mud on my face personality, Right. (laughs) whatever, it is engaging with the other council members and the community, but we have found amazing tools that are out there like Berkeley Safe Trek. So Berkeley Safe Trek, have you heard of Berkeley Safe Trek? I haven't, no. 
So Berkeley SafeTrack basically operates out of UC Berkeley-ish, but it's basically an entity. I don't know what their actual organizational entity is, but they basically are funded. So it's a California entity of some form that's funded by the Office of Traffic Safety and Berkeley SafeTrack. They're going to kill me that I couldn't exactly explain it, but they basically have one of the best model. Portland even has one. So it's TREC traffic, R stands for, but it's basically education center. So it's a resource center for data and education, but they go the extra mile with the Office of Traffic Safety. So we first applied for their community grant, which didn't pay us to do the work, but they brought in facilitators like California Walks, came in, facilitated with us, and we did a community pedestrian bicycling safety training workshop, where then out of that, we would get a report. Basically, we got Pasadena Unified School District, who is our school district too, the local council member, community members, the teachers, the students, the highway patrol, public works. And we all came together to address the safety around this one school. And it was all paid for by the state of California Office of Traffic Safety. But that helped us really identify some of the problems that we had. We had a report and then we did a follow-up bicycling assessment because I said, we need to do the bicycle component. What about the bicycle component? So then they found a way to do a second phase with us. And then we expanded. How about all of West Altadena? (laughs) Not just around the school. And so we got people together. Oh my God. And then just empowering people. So we also then applied for the League of American Bicyclists Spark grant. We've been inspired by Sam Balto trying to get the walking school bus. I also teach. So I'm thankful again for the LACBC walk and rollers who has been my core teaching work that I also do. Jim Shenman, right. And that is so empowering when you see the kids going as programs progress, like Culver City, for example. Right. And suddenly I helped him with transitioning the kids from elementary school to the middle school. So we just go meet them at the elementary school and go, hey, you guys, here's your ABC quick check. Let's make sure your bikes are working and we're going to go. And we kind of taught them the routes they would take from their school. And then they got to meet other kids in the middle school that ride bikes too. Oh, you ride a bike? You ride a bike? So that kind of stuff is so empowering. It drives my soul and just getting kids to feel bicycling, to really look out for cars. But when I say that, this thing rings in my head now (laughs) as that council member, why am I trying to help this child when they leave this safe space that we're teaching in? There's nowhere for them to go to do those things. That's why I enjoy doing that so much, even while I'm still working. Sure. Well, that brings me to my last question. What's next for Dorothy Wong? Are you going to run for state assembly or for LA city council or for Congress? What? Um, That's like a loaded question. For me, I really felt that I like to be boots on the ground when I see leaders that are doing things, but I'm also big picture, right? right? But when I see people that are big picture, they're doing things for big picture but they're really still coming back locally because they represent local people like these bigger leaders. So that might be in the future, but I really also see the learning I've done that could lead to other types of work to continue advocacy that relate to all the learning I've done. So I see a couple jobs that pop up and go, wow. Great. Well, any job you can fill is certainly helpful, but I really do think our movement needs people like you in the political sphere. So you've got my vote. 
and more we, people just get involved. It's absolutely so amazing. Even if you have to volunteer for a while, everything will come your way if you put yourself out there Perfect. and then you learn whatever it is. To me, it just drives me more. <laughs> you know? Right. I'm not like, oh God, why did I do this? Let's do this. Let's do this. Dorothy Wong, thank you so much for spending some time with us on Bike Talk. I really appreciate all the work you've done over the years and all the work you will be doing. Thank you, Taylor. Now, Robert Anderson, a founder of the More Than a Cyclist campaign to make cycling safer by putting a human face to people who ride bikes. We've been going just over a year now. And obviously this started from a group locally all being affected by the way drivers were behaving around us. A couple of incidents in particular where people were very badly hurt. One person died, another very badly injured. And then some very close personal experiences with drivers and their behaviour towards the cyclists, which made us feel we needed to do something. It wasn't just enough to to be unhappy about the situation or, or the usual thing of complaining or getting angry. We also didn't think that the approach we needed to take was one to point the finger and try and apportion blame. We thought it was more important to try and change behaviour. And you don't change behavior by starting a, starting a pointing war, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That was part of where we came from, was the aim being to encourage people to think a little bit differently about the person they see on a bike and think of them as an individual. And we had the idea of if you, if you saw a doctor or a nurse or someone who was in the fire service, you really wouldn't behave like that to them. It's not something you would do. So why would you do that? Because they happen to be wearing cycling clothes and riding a bike. That's where that sort of idea came from. And I'm sure other people have had similar ideas where you go, well, you wouldn't do this to your mum or your daughter. And that's where some of the text comes from to make the connection that this is a person. It's not some inconvenience in your need to get to the next traffic lights or get to wherever you need to get to. It's a person. There's someone's mum, someone's dad, someone's brother, sister. And they also have some professional activity, which which actually is good for the rest of us as well. And so it's in our interest to not be horrible to them. It is kind of where it came from. So you're showing people, cyclists, as people in the helping professions, family members, something that will humanize cyclists. Yeah, absolutely. That's the idea. It's the humanization. I think we all felt that we're treated as less than humans sometimes by the way drivers behave to us. And... It was important if we want to change people's behaviours, we need to change their perception of what they see. So moving the way they think about someone who's on a bike to being someone who's very human and someone who's valuable to them. So what would we see as part of this campaign? So what we do is we have a split screen image. So on the one side, we'll have the person wearing their cycling clothes. And on the other side, we'll see them wearing the clothes that they would wear for their job. So we have one of our friends' children who was happy to participate in his school uniform and the other his clothes he wears when he cycles. We've got one that's a doctor in his doctor's whites with a stethoscope, very clearly a doctor, and the other side of the image split down the middle is him wearing his cycling clothes. And we have text that goes with that. He's a doctor, he's a father, he's a husband, etc. He's more than a cyclist. Mm -hmm. And as simple as it is, I guess. And these would be where? On billboards? So we've got them on social media at the moment. So most of our campaign has been on Facebook and Instagram. 
We have got some campaign working on Twitter and some on LinkedIn as we reach various professional groups. We've looked at whether we want to go down the billboard route. Actually, what we want to do next is to try and do some targeted work around use of the moving image on YouTube, which might be where we go. We're working with British Cycling's legal team, Lee Day, in the UK to develop an approach to how we tell more stories of people who've had poor outcomes from poor behaviour on the road and move on for just the more than the cyclist. It's also their family and bringing out the point that when this person who's a mother, a sister, a wife, when you do that to her, you're also affecting her daughter, her husband, her sister, her family, and all the people she works with, because they're all affected. We all have connections with each other. And it's making those points, which I think are quite powerful. We're also working with an insurance brokerage called NFP, and we're developing some training material with them, which we really are looking at going specifically to organisations that do mass transportation or provide services for people, perhaps where they need to have a car or a vehicle because their car is in being repaired. And talking to them about how do we work with the people who are taking those services so that they get some guidance on an approach that will mean that they drive a little bit differently. Because obviously, if they don't have accidents and if they don't have poor outcomes with cyclists on the road, then that's better for them because there's a company. They're not going to have insurance bills. They're not going to have to have their cars repaired. Their drivers can continue to work. So that's an angle we're looking at on that side as well. You're in what part of the UK? So we're in the Midlands. So we're in Birmingham, right in the middle of the UK. And the UK, I guess, compared to where you are, is quite a small place. But we've been connecting with a lot of people locally. We're doing things with road safety partnerships with the police and with some of the other groups which are looking to try and change behaviours locally. So we're doing some work with them. We did some work across the summer when we had the Commonwealth Games here where we had some stands up in Warwick where the road race was held, um, which received some good feedback from people who saw the images and saw what we're trying to say. And then we're doing some more over the next couple of months as we run into Christmas and nights get darker and trying to help those who want to use cycling as a preference to get to their school or their work, that they are actually being supported by some important consideration about their safety. When you mention the police and working with them to do trainings, I guess, often the police are the ones who have this windshield view where cyclists are invisible to them and they don't really take cyclist deaths or injuries all that seriously, a lot of people feel. Do you think that you could also give trainings to people like police? Um yeah, I mean, it's an interesting conversation. There are some really good advocates within law enforcement in the UK where it's a bit like everything, I guess. You get some really good and you get some not so good. And locally, Warwickshire, who we've been forming a really good partnership with, they have police people working with them. And we're having a really good discussion with them about that and how we bring more awareness to how these things work. And things like in the UK, there was something called Operation Close Pass which was around education for drivers. So we're definitely working on that. With Lee Day, we're looking to get more engaged with the people at the Department for Transport and the people who are organising and setting the rules of the road, if you like. And there's, there's an organisation called the All-Party Working Group on Cycling and Walking, which we're looking to get some engagement with because 
they have influence at the highest level and that will open some doors for us to have those conversations. I think there is probably a place across all of the areas where we have professional drivers and we have standards where there's an opportunity to engage and have a dialogue. I think that's probably where I get to. But I think the nature of that dialogue will be different depending on who and what context there is on that. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of work to do. And I hear a lot doing this podcast People sometimes say that they woke up to how streets are completely dominated by cars and how other road users are really not given any space. And they say, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And so I think what you're doing is addressing that. It's helping people see what they couldn't see, the blind spot. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's a very good point. You have that in lots of other areas as well. Once you know it, you can't unknow it. You have to do something about it. And I think there is definitely some cultural learning, I think, from different areas, different parts of the world where they've been more successful how to change the cultural norm and how to change the way these things work. And that's part of why we kind of didn't want to get into, well, we need to change this bit about the road or we need to change this bit about the law. Why our campaign was focused around culture and behavioural shift, because if you go for these single aspects, great, you might actually get something changed. But no one thing is going to solve the problem. And the problem is far more inherently about culture and behaviour than it is about whether the rules of the road say you need to do this, that or the other. We've had a highway code change in the UK, which says on paper, drivers should be giving priority to cyclists. And there's a hierarchy of needs that's been identified that goes from the vehicle that could do the most harm and cause the most problem on the road down to the people who are the most vulnerable. So obviously individuals walking is at the very lowest point in terms of can do the least harm and are the most harmed all the way up to articulated lorries and big heavy goods vehicles. So that in theory should be making a difference. It's not. And that's not that's because it's only dealt with a legal construct. It hasn't actually addressed the problem, which is cultural and behavioural. It hasn't changed the way anyone does it. And I think it's a little bit short-sighted to think that if you just change one thing, you're going to make everything suddenly all right. I think learning from places like Holland and Denmark and those countries where they've actually been brave and stuck at it for some time, this doesn't happen quickly. And you have to be prepared to have some pretty tough conversations, but you have to accept that what you have to eventually do is change the way people think about what they're going to do and how they're going to behave around one another. And what's, I guess, disappointing and I think is frustrating for us a little bit is that during the pandemic, we were all able to behave very differently and with respect for each other. And then suddenly we go back to this norm and it's not great, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try and change it. Yeah. And as you say, it can be a long, slow process, but I'm hoping it's little by little and then all at once. Yeah, I think so. I think if I look at some of the other success stories from around the world, you get little, small, incremental changes that suddenly add up to something very big. And that's when that becomes sticky and you get that change in behavior. I think what's been reassuring is that we've found that what we're doing resonates with people. And it resonates with drivers as well as resonating with people who you'd expect to get it, the cyclists. And the people who see it, okay, I get that. I get what that's trying to tell me. I get what you're trying to say. And I get that your message is, is actually see the person, treat them with respect. 
Because it's something that I think for a lot of us in our day work environments, we're being encouraged to think about as well. So that link from how you should be thinking about someone when you're working to how you should be thinking when you're not working is now becoming much more consistent. And that helps. What's been reassuring, as I say, is we've had people in Australia who reached out to us and the, the campaign that we had, but with Australian people for the UCI World Championships out in Australia recently, they're doing a Safer Streets project. And I know from what they've said that yeah, those have gone down really, really well. They're very powerful images as well that they've captured. And that's good because that gives me confidence that what we're doing is the right thing and it's touching the right nerves in the right way. Um, we're getting more people coming to this and going, hey, we think this works, give this a go in our environment. So you start to build up that kind of groundswell and that movement that might make the difference. And it's a simple idea. You take somebody who's just an anonymous cyclist and then you have a split screen and you show them in their other roles. Yeah, I think so. It is as simple as that. And it's a very clear and striking image of being able to see the person for what they do, the thing that you value about them and then see them in a different role. And why does your perception change? You need to change your perception. All right, great. Well, let's keep in touch. Be good too, Nick. Thank you. That was Bike Talk. Check us out at biketalk.org and get in touch. Support us if you like our work. We post every week, so check back next Tuesday. Have a good week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around.